Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. Any every time I like hear the the theme song start when I like listen to the podcast while I'm like delivering because I'm a delivery driver. Mm-hmm. Like it gets kind of hype. I'm like, yeah, it's like starting. <laughs> <laughs> I like that theme song. I just I uh, remember when the kid was asking, he's like, hey, you guys want a theme song? I'm like, yeah, make it something like basic. And then he came up with yeah. that. I was like, yeah, I'm down with this. I'm not gonna lie. Sometimes it scares the shit out of me though. <laughs> <laughs> I do wonder how loud it comes out in people's speakers if they're just like at a normal volume before then. Well, like sometimes in my AirPods, like for some reason, like sometimes it'll just like be loud as fuck. Mm. Like you got, it'll go from you guys just like talking about something to just being like, and I'm like, <laughs> sorry. My buddy said that it's ruined his GPS for him now because it says turn left. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So yours is called 262 Talks. Is that how you say it? Yep. Yep. Cool. And you're in Kenosha. I didn't realize. Yeah. We should have done like a Rittenhouse episode or something. We've done a few of them actually, where it's like, uh, because all of that stuff is like very close to home for us. Like one, one of the reasons we actually started the group was it was because after like the George Floyd like incident that kind of sparked off the like summer of like protesting and stuff like that. That's when a lot of community activism got up and running here in Kenosha and Racine in that area. And that's where I started meeting a lot of the people that's in our group. Like a few of them I've known for quite a long time, but like I started meeting like the core people like throughout then. And then when Jacob Blake happened and that entire week of like being out at the uprising and stuff like that, all of us like saw like straight up like a war zone. It was fucking crazy. So basically what we wanted to do to like start the group when we started the group was actually just talk about like what happened in Kenosha and then Kenosha issues. But then it turned into us discussing uh, just a broad range of issues on episode to episode. Um, we usually like enter in with like one or two topics, and then it's just kind of like an open dialect. Like I'm gonna be completely honest, I'm the furthest left person on the podcast. It it's very much like just a I don't even know how to describe it. It's like an open panel of people from different political backgrounds and different varying knowledge bases. So that's cool. Like there's some people who only became politically aware starting last summer. And then there's people who have actually been on like the school board and stuff who are in the group. So oh, nice. How many people do you have total in the group? We have eight, but we kind of do like a rotating mm-hmm. like cast. So because all of our schedules are so like, yeah. tell me about it. Like uh, contradictory. So it's like, We'll range from either having three to like five or six people per episode. Yeah, we have five nominally, and we hardly ever yeah. have more than three anymore just because of scheduling. One of the cool things about using Zoom, like when you're the host, I have the power to mute people. Mm-hmm. One of my members in our group, his name is Kyle. He's one of the most moderate people you've ever met. Like he's, I call him the Joe Biden of our group. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a running joke that anytime he starts talking smack about socialism or communism, I just mute him. <laughs> and just pull the old Stalin on him. Yeah, basically, I'm just like, I'm like, nope. <laughs> I like it. I'm a fan. I think we could do that in here in case we bring Dunk back on. Yeah, we're not going to make that mistake again. I yeah, know. Unless he wants to come on here and just debate me one on one about uh, vaccines, and I'll just hand him his ass. <laughs> I really liked your guys' episode with the uh, dunking on ANCAPs. Yeah, which one? Both of them. I, I liked both of them. Because I was a little less savory about the second one. You know, I'm glad we had the guy on, but I feel like it was both unfair to him and also it didn't feel very productive. But go ahead, sorry. No, I liked it just because it was like, it provided everybody a chance to like deal with like the common arguments that like ANCAPs and libertarians make. 
I, I enjoyed it, but you know, that might just be like an interpersonal thing. But um, I actually unironically had a very similar argument with somebody when I was working at an Amazon warehouse. Oof. We were on break, and this guy, he self-identified as an ANCAP. And when I tried to get him to explain how his world would work, he was just like, well, what are you? And I said, I'm an ANCOM if I had to identify as anything. And then he goes, I just think I know more about anarchism than you. And I'm like, that's not answering any of my questions, oh, man. Oh, my <laughs> like, God. I'm yeah. like, okay, dude, sure. <laughs> Clearly, you know that, you know, a system that is designed to have no unnecessary hierarchies, you know, can work with a system that inherently has hierarchies. Clearly, you know more about anarchism than I do. See, you took the high road. I would have just been like, buddy, why aren't you the CEO? Why are you here in the break room with me instead of being in Jeff Bezos' chair if you're such a great ANCAP? Come on. <laughs> I literally told him, I said, it's bold of you to assume that you'd be the oligarch instead of a slave. Mm-hmm. Especially since he's in a fucking Amazon warehouse. like. <laughs> Yep. It was funny. The, the most productive thing that happened to me while I was working at Amazon was the fact that I got to radicalize about 20 people. So, hell yeah. You know, that's yeah. Uh, literally praxis. Yep. Yeah. It's good shit. Yeah. We're actually, uh, I'm talking with uh, some local like Teamsters and some of the uh, state assembly people that I have connections with who have formed unions in the past to begin the process of starting a union for Amazon delivery drivers. Mm -hmm. Cause that's what I currently do. Um, and the thing that kind of sparked that interest into pursuing that was we got notified with literally a week and a half's notice that all step van drivers, which is the large vans that are out for 10 hours a day, mm -hmm. we're getting a pay cut of a dollar starting June 1st. And, um, you know, that doesn't sound too crazy, but it's also June is when peak season starts because that's when prime week happens. Right. So we're having to pick up an extra fifth day during the week. So we're all pretty much going to be working 50 hours a week, but then making less money. And, you know, because, you know, Amazon so. profits have not risen, not continued to go up. Yep. So, you know, there I've I've been doing the early steps of maybe forming a organization council and stuff so it's a very early stage but you know it's it's one of those things that we're we're working on that reminds me we got to have those iww guys back on to talk about that amazon bessemer thing do you have any like uh resources on like starting a union because we got like a few listeners that ask like about resources um I got lucky. Uh, a few of the people who are in my group know people who are a part of like the Teamsters and stuff. I was thinking about contacting the IWW uh, also just to get like, I don't know, I'm just trying to get as many people to like assist us with this because the situation where we're trying to unionize is slightly unique because Amazon doesn't deliver their own packages. They do a third party contracting system. So we all drive Amazon trucks and we wear Amazon shirts and everything, but we all work for individual smaller companies. Like Jesus the location Christ. I work at, we have four smaller companies that are stationed out of that one. All of these smaller companies have their own individual contracts with Amazon and stuff. So at any time, if say only one of the companies was trying to unionize or strike, they'll just cut that contract and bring in a different company. So, one of the issues that we're running into is that we need to get multiple companies on board and not only in our station, but like in the neighboring stations in like Chicago, Milwaukee and everything. So we have like enough threatening power behind us almost like to where if we said, hey, we're going on strike. So where none of the stations would be able to operate instead of just 
oh, I guess 20 routes don't get given out today. That's crazy. So, and they purposely separate the companies in the way that our scheduling works around each other to where we don't have any kind of, you know, like way to interact with one another. So it's just going to, it's going to take a while. It's not going to be one of those things where by December we're going to have a union. It's going to, it's going to take a decent amount of time. No, I'm actually like really surprised because I've never heard that aspect of it. Like I've just always assumed that Amazon was the one company and they had all their delivery drivers working for them. I've never heard anybody even mention that they have all these independent contract delivery companies that still, Mm -hmm. and it's like very obviously, like if you're wearing Amazon shirts or driving Amazon trucks, like it's not like these companies are working for other fulfillment services competing with Amazon. So it's like, it's obviously just to skirt around unions and like formation of unions. Mm -hmm. That's exactly why. And it's funny because it's like, we're constantly being threatened with losing our contract, like for anything. It's like, um... Somebody, I guess, vaped inside one of the buildings in their car, and, like, Amazon straight up threatened us, like, cut our contract. So it's like, yeah, they they don't give a fuck. And one of the reasons that our pay is getting decreased is because Amazon, the way that they pay the companies is that they give them, like, a stipend for, like, a good majority of our pay. So it's like, say I'm getting paid $18 an hour, Amazon pays 15 of that and then the company I work for they'll pay like the other part so like that's how they make their like profit or whatever I don't I don't know exactly how it works but it's like Amazon decided that they didn't want to contribute as much to paying us anymore mm-hmm. I don't know it, it's 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 fucked up and it's kind of super complicated well, and I wonder what happens to like that company if Amazon does cut its contract do they then just like change a couple heads and then reapply to Amazon? Like, what are they going to do? They're not going to go work for somebody else's delivery company. Like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's cause it's one of those things where it's like the job security that we have is like very questionable when it comes to like the company we directly work for anyway, because there's a lot of rumors going around like between some of like the lower management and stuff saying that they're just going to not renew their contract or something like that in the fall. Figures. No, I mean the best you can hope for in that situation is just keep radicalizing people. Because, you know, it's like, that's, mm-hmm. I feel like, <laughs> wouldn't that be funny if that was like the next American socialist revolution was just all Amazon and Walmart workers? Like they just form such Dude, a huge yeah. coalition that they just get so radicalized and violent. I don't have uh, a lot of optimism for it, but it'd be nice to dream of. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the people that I work with, as you would imagine, like delivery drivers, like the stereotype in your head is like a middle-aged dude, just like tromping around. Like that is, that's my crew. That's who I work with. Yeah. And you would think that a lot of them would have like a disposition to be against leftist ideas and stuff like that. But it's from what I found, a lot of them were very open. I was like, as long as you start the conversation without being like, well, Karl Marx says, you know, like as long as you like propose like some ideas, someone will be like, yeah, you know, that makes sense. Like I'll bring up a surplus labor value or something like that. I'm like, I'm like, how is it? We're delivering like 300 packages per day. And that's bringing thousands of dollars worth of profit to Amazon. I was like, how come we're only getting paid this much? And they're like, yeah, that makes sense. And I'm like, <laughs> right? Isn't it crazy? Like, Ain't that some shit. But then it's like, as soon as, as soon as you mentioned that that's like a leftist like thing, that's when they'll like shut down. You got to like kind of tread carefully. I'm telling you, man, by like episode 100, we'll have a fully fleshed out ideology called workerism. And it'll just be communism. And we'll just change all the terms. And that's it.
God, those communists are amazing. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Turn Ups Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him, and tonight I'm here with Ward, he, him, and Daniel from the 262 Talks Podcast. How you doing, Daniel? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. And your pronouns are he, him as well? Yeah. Cool. All right. And tonight we're going to talk about the liberalism and fascism connection. So we've talked about it before briefly, and I want to, I can't actually remember what episode it was in. I want to say it was like the anti-fascist or not the real fascists episode, either that or one of the episodes on neoliberalism. But basically we've talked briefly about the connection between liberalism and fascism and how liberalism will always more easily turn to fascism rather than communism. So just to start us off, I have this pretty appropriate quote from Bertolt Brecht. And he says, the intellectuals cast a veil over the dictatorial character of bourgeois democracy, not least by presenting democracy as the absolute opposite of fascism, not as just another natural phase of it where the bourgeois dictatorship is revealed in a more open form. Yeah, I think that's very appropriate. The basis of it is just that you have this entire class of people who are the petty bourgeois, you know, business owners, wealthy people, and they will always more readily turn to fascism when confronted with a state of decay in their country. Whenever the economic and material conditions get too dire and the working classes are too exploited and they start to rise up in any kind of violence or they start sympathizing with communists or forming unions or demanding any kind of uh, you know, better working conditions and rights, that's when you see fascism spring up. You see terror dictatorships. You see, you know, even the well-meaning and somewhat progressive liberals side with fascism when it comes to deciding between changes in their own material conditions, a decrease in their own lifestyle and maintaining a democracy uh, for whatever sense they may have had it to begin with. So what we're going to do is talk about historical examples of when this happened. We're going to cover a little bit about Germany, Italy, a little bit about Japan, and also some examples in Brazil and Spain as well. Daniel, did you have anything that you wanted to uh, open up with uh, before we jump into, I think we'll just start with Italy, but uh, if you have anything that you wanted to add to start us off? Um... I'm not really sure. I didn't know if you wanted to to go into that list of what makes a fascist movement or not as like a pretext when it comes to like liberalism and how it relates to fascism. Um, Yeah, the Umberto Eco thing. Yeah, if you wanted to like talk about that later, that's cool. But I think we can just kind of bring it up in line with what we're talking about as we go, because, again, what we're going to see is that a lot of these things follow a very recognizable pattern here. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of those characteristics, I think, will come up over and over again. So just to start us off, here's a piece I took from an article called Liberalism and Fascism, Partners in Crime. And this was by Gabriel Rockhill, uh, writing for Counterpunch. So he says, time and again, we hear that liberalism is the last bulwark against fascism. It represents a defense of the rule of law and democracy in the face of aberrant, malevolent demagogues intent on destroying a perfectly good system for their own gain. This apparent opposition has been deeply ingrained in contemporary so-called Western liberal democracies through their shared origin myth. As every schoolchild in the U.S. learns, for instance, liberalism defeated fascism in World War II, beating back the Nazi beast in order to establish a new international order that, for all of its potential faults and misdeeds, was built upon key democratic principles that are antithetical to fascism. This framing of the relationship between liberalism and fascism not only presents them as complete opposites, but it also defines the very essence of the fight against fascism as the struggle for liberalism. In so doing, it forges an ideological false antagonism. For what fascism and liberalism share is their undying devotion to the capitalist world order. Although one prefers the velvet glove of hegemonic and consensual rule, and the other relies more readily on the iron fist of repressive violence, they are both intent on maintaining and developing capitalist social relations, and they have worked together throughout modern history in order to do so. What this apparent conflict masks, and this is its true ideological power, 
is that the real fundamental dividing line is not between two different modes of capitalist governance, but between capitalists and anti-capitalists. So I had to just take that whole passage from his article because I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, that's mm-hmm. really the best summation of it that, I've, uh, that I was able to find in my research for this. That being said, let's start off with Italy, because after all, fascism originated in Italy. I think this is still from the same article, the Gabriel Rocco article. So concerning Italy, he says, it is of the utmost importance that Western European fascism emerge with parliamentary democracies rather than conquering them from the outside. The fascists rose to power in Italy at a moment of severe political and economic crisis on the heels of World War I and then later the Great Depression. This was also a time when the world had just witnessed the first successful anti-capitalist revolution in the USSR. Mussolini, who had cut his teeth working for MI5 to break up the Italian peace movement during World War I, was later backed by big industrial capitalists and bankers for his anti-worker, pro-capitalist political orientation. His tactic was to work within the parliamentary system by mobilizing powerful financial supporters to bankroll his expansive propaganda campaign, while his black shirts rode roughshod over picket lines and working class organizations. So here you have, you know, Mussolini not taking over violently. I mean, doing violence, like having, you know, violent mobs in the streets that are causing violence, often blaming it on socialists. But then it's just creating this general sense of unrest. It's causing people to look for some kind of extreme measures to just ease the tensions just so they can go back to normal because they, they're bothered by this. And you notice that, you know, he gets support from business interests. He gets support from the well-to-do. He gets support from the wealthy. Like, just take note of this pattern is all I'm going to say. What you got, Daniel? Well, I think it's like even in this first like early example, I feel like it's very easy to already see the inherent reactionary like leanings that fascist movements like have. They are often in an extreme like reaction to whatever like dire circumstances are coming around. Like, you know, especially when it comes to like economic downturns, like especially when like post-World War One, when a lot of the nations were experiencing like a pretty steady downturn in their economic status because of, you know, the Spanish flu, just post-war and stuff like that. You see how fascism inherently is just reactionary and is usually going to be bankrolled by these oligarchs who are in positions of power who do want to maintain a said status quo while also getting a movement behind them that is foaming at the mouth that will go out and beat people up in the streets, um, you know, commit action for action's sake, you know, and it's it's kind of to me i just think it's quite funny to like see those early like one of those early call signs in a fascist movement like literally in the first fascist movement it's not Mm -hmm. you know that's just a funny thing to me that is the yeah it's funny to me like you know writing the notes for italy because being the first fascist movement it was the most mask off whereas every (laughs) successive fascist movement has to code their language a little more they have to be a little more careful about what they say so that you can't identify it as easily as the fascist movement that it is but so going on here, let's see. In October of 1922, magnates in the Confederation of Industry and major bank leaders provided Mussolini with the millions necessary for the march on Rome as a spectacular show of force. However, he did not seize power. Instead, Mussolini was summoned by the king on October 29th and was, according to parliamentary norms, entrusted with forming a cabinet. The capitalist state turned itself over without a fight, but Mussolini was intent on forming an absolute majority in parliament with the help of the liberals. They supported his new electoral law in 1923. This was the uh, this was the Acerbo law, which stated that the party with the largest share of the votes would automatically receive two thirds of the seats in parliament as long as they received over 25 percent of the vote, which is crazy. Like they had so many parties. They said, if you get 25 percent, then you just get two thirds immediately. Okay, so like I said, the liberals supported his new electoral law in July 1923, and they made a joint slate with the fascists for the election on April 6, 1924. The fascists, who had only 35 seats in parliament, gained 286 seats with the help of the liberals. 
Fascism in both Italy and Germany came to power through bourgeois parliamentary democracy, in which big capital bankrolled candidates who would do its bidding while also creating a populist spectacle, a false revolution, that marshaled or suggested mass appeal. Its conquest of power took place within this legal and constitutional framework, which secured its apparent legitimacy on the home front, as well as within the international community of the bourgeois democracies. Leon Trotsky understood this perfectly and diagnosed what was going on at the time with remarkable insight. So this is Trotsky now. The results are at hand. Bourgeois democracy transforms itself legally, pacifically, into a fascist dictatorship. The secret is simple enough. Bourgeois democracy and fascist dictatorship are the instruments of one and the same class, the exploiters. It is absolutely impossible to prevent the replacement of one instrument by the other by appealing to the Constitution, the Supreme Court at Leipzig, new elections, etc. What is necessary is to mobilize the revolutionary forces of the proletariat. Constitutional fetishism brings the best aid to fascism. Trotsky actually sounded pretty based. Based? Yeah, I was hoping to quote Lenin. He knew what he was talking about, man. Okay, and then going back to Rock Hill. Once its power was secure, however, fascism revealed its authoritarian face, transforming itself into what Trotsky referred to as the military bureaucratic dictatorship of the Bonapartist type. It unflinchingly set about, at a rather different pace in Italy than in Germany, completing the task it had been hired to accomplish by crushing organized labor, eradicating opposition parties, destroying independent publications, putting a halt to elections, scapegoating and eliminating radicalized underclasses, privatizing public assets, launching projects of colonial expansion, and investing heavily in a war economy beneficial to its industrial supporters. That was a long list, but like, those are all very telltale signs of fascism. So you have the worsening material conditions uh, economically for everyone, and so they turn to this hyper-nationalist party, and the liberals help them because they would rather see this happen than lose any of their property or their power or see any kind of significant change to their economic and political system. And so they, they help these fascists get into power, and then the fascists immediately take more power, than, like seize power, and turn it into authoritarianism. And let me just read that list one more time. Crushing organized labor, okay, so targeting leftists and unions, eradicating opposition parties, of course, destroying independent publications, so clamping down on the media, putting a halt to elections, mm-hmm, scapegoating and eliminating radicalized underclasses, privatizing public assets, launching projects of colonial expansion, and investing heavily in a war economy beneficial to its industrial supporters. It's like, it's just too a T. It's too perfect. And in establishing the direct dictatorship of big capital, it even destroyed some of the more plebeian and populist elements in its own ranks, while crushing many confused liberals under the juggernaut of repressive class warfare. So it happens, liberals. You get what you ask for. Is Germany to the next thing? Yes. Okay, I think before we move on to Germany, we could go into Dan's thing about the um, 14 list. Yeah, let's do that. I really like the Umberto list because it helps break down... It's a better analysis of fascism than people's common understanding, like especially when it comes in terms of Nazis, where it's like palingenetic ultranationalism. Like it helps break that narrative out. Palingenetic ultranationalism isn't the only form of fascism. Hmm. And I, I think the fact that we already touched on basically like the blueprint fascist movement for many of the other ones, like that would be a good spot. So we can like compare with like Germany, Spain, and some of the other nations. Um, yeah, let's jump into that. Um, so the first one on Umberto's list is the culture de- tradition. One only has to look at the syllabus of every fascist movement to find the major traditionalist thinkers. The Nazi genesis was nourished by traditionalists and occult elements. You know, so I like to go over some of these things like in almost in like a dumbed down version. Like when I try to explain what a culture tradition is to somebody, it's like I basically try to bring up the fact that 
many conservative people like to use the 50s as an example of when the United States was in like a golden era. Mm -hmm. And then they almost mysticize it to be a point where America was perfect. Nothing was wrong with it. It's amazing. They try to lie about the context behind a lot of these historical events that were the quote unquote golden age for whatever nation the uh, the movement is a part of. So like for uh, Italy, it would have been uh, trying to rebuild the Roman Empire in Germany, it was with the, you know, the idolization of the Aryan race and stuff like that. So that's the culture tradition. I don't know if you guys wanted to mention anything. No, I mean, we're going to see that again. That's again, that's going to pop up in just about all of these. I think, you know, in the American version, it's like you said, the 50s, um, a lot of boomers who think of that as like the iconic era, because, of course, they're thinking of a time when they could just exploit everybody and they could be at the top of the heap as far as like the mm -hmm. working class of concern when it still existed in this country. But then also you get people who are just going straight back to 1776. Like they have this idea mm -hmm. of this fantasy of America that existed and they want to return to that. And it's because, I mean, their vision is not obviously compatible with reality as it exists today, but that doesn't matter because it gives them something to look back on because what is going on is obviously not working for them right now. So they just want to find mm -hmm. some, again, you know, thinking of a new way of doing things is just out of the question. You couldn't possibly think of a new economic system that actually works for working class people and is democratically controlled that's terrible and that's anti-freedom but you have to go backwards hundreds of years because apparently that that works better i guess now anyway. yeah um so the second item on this list is the rejection of modernism the enlightenment the age of reason is seen as the beginning of modern depravity in this or fascism can be defined as irrationalism or fascism or fascism yeah it's like the what is it like the meta fascism yeah, it's like the the your stereotypical base fascism. Yeah. Um, number three, the cult of action for action's sake. Action being beautiful in itself, it must be taken before or without any previous reflection. Thinking is a form of emasculization. Sounds about right. Sounds like jumpers. Yeah, like it. it you know that that is one of the base things you need to have in a like a fascist movement is that diehard just cultish following behind you that is willing to go out and commit some of these acts of like violence or in intimidation and stuff like that to me i think it's kind of entertaining that some of the things well the first three things on this list we can directly point at things you know in uh, a certain nation that i think all three of us live in <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think we're going to be able to point to all 14 of them but yeah go on uh, yeah, yeah yeah i love this because it's just like how you're saying the blind faith where like yeah, just do anything you can because the whole belief is like we are great and deserving people and we will rise again. But if we don't, we will be wiped out mm -hmm. and exterminated. Um, number four, disagreement is treason. The critical spirit makes distinctions and to distinguish is a sign of modernism. In modern culture, the scientific community praises disagreement as a way to improve knowledge. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Like, I would almost like point to, you know, a lot of people saying, like, you may not like who is in office, but you need to respect them no matter what. Like, that is your that is the person who is in charge of you. You need to like, you know, and if you decide to be critical of them, you are, you know, which ironically, I can't find any of those guys anymore. All the guys who were saying that about Trump the whole time when people were rightfully pointing out how much of a joke and an idiot that he was. And then you'd have all these people like, hey, look, you may not like what Trump says because you're a crybaby snowflake liberal, but you should at least respect the office of the president. And now none of those guys have 
any respect for Biden. Not that I have respect for Biden, but still, like, they just don't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a tired trope, the lack of consistency among yeah. conservatives, but, you know. And that's the, the contradictory nature of reactionaries like conservatives and fascists. It's oh, yeah. like, whatever their situation is, that's what they adapt to. It's not a consistent ideology. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I just wanted to, I was going to comment on, like, especially, like, in terms of, like, white supremacy, the hypocrisy of them, where it's, like, reject modernism but embrace like, tradition yeah embrace <laughs> tradition but at the same time they're like when you point out white people's history and how fucking horrific it is they're like well like we were the ones that like brought civilization and science and you're like no i was like arabs and other people but like they try to be like claim that they're like the pure ones and like the masculine ones but also at the same time they're like oh no we were also the intellectuals and stuff but now they're like that fuck people who are intellectual now like they try to claim all these things in such weird facets again just to harp on the hypocritical nature of conservatism you will at the same time acknowledge that this country was very racist but still want to use that version of history that was being taught when that was prevalent Mm -hmm. like when you talk about the actual history of like this country of imperialism of capitalism and you talk about the atrocities committed in his name then you are accused of revising history because you're making it the Marxist version or the leftist version or the liberal version of history. Yeah. Um, So the fifth thing on this good old list of ours is fear of difference. The first appeal of a fascist or prematurely fascist movement is an appeal against the intruders. Thus, er, fascism is racist by definition. So like the forming of the in-groups and the out-groups, it's just classic. It's be it, uh, you know, the Jews, the gypsies, the gays, or the people who are needing extra assistance. Uh, I don't know, I'm trying to... <laughs> yeah, definitely able to. It's extremely easy to find those people who belong to the like, so-called out-groups to make the people who are in the in-group feel special. Like, oh, we are, you know, we're the, we're the Germans, like those fucking filthy pigs over there, they don't get it. Like, we, we're the people who should be ruling all of it and stuff. Like, but, like, with fascism, the whole, like, idea is that, like, it's run by a narrowly defined us. But when you push them and ask, well, like, what's the reason we should be in charge? It's nothing coherent. And in the process of fascism taking over, like the definition of us becomes more and more gradually narrowly defined as they accumulate more power. Mm-hmm. Well, that and the way that you react to any, any measure taken against that. And again, this is something I say all the time on here, but like the way that you react to anti-racism and call it anti-white, the way you react to being rightfully called a bigot or a homophobe or a transphobe and say that, That's just a tactic used by your enemy to discredit anybody who stands for patriotism or conservative values where you use the coded language again. Like, you know, what everybody knows what Southern values means. Like if you go on like Tinder and you see somebody in the profile and they say, yeah, I like Southern values. It's like, oh, you're a racist. Like you're a blue lives matter, like trumping racist. Like that's all you got to say. Um, the appeal to social, social frustration. One of the most typical features of the historical of historical fascism was the appeal to a frustrated middle class, a class suffering from an economic crisis or feeling of political humiliation and frightened by the pressure of lower social groups. Yeah, that's another pattern we're going to see in just about every one of these here is that the economic conditions were getting worse and the working classes were having a tough time. And so, of course, the people in power are like, no, don't blame us. We're not the ones that are you know, the reason for your problem, even though we're literally siphoning money from you every day. 
It's the people who are poorer than you and different color. Sorry, but go ahead, Daniel. Well, I just, uh, to kind of like link it back to like the topic of this episode, it's one of the reasons I think that this, like this point of fascist movements is very prevalent in most fascist movements in general um, is because of liberals and the fact that they do not want like quick and concise action to actually fix a lot of these uh, societal issues be it, you know, people's financial uh, status and stuff like that, the way that they just seem very apathetic to the uh, social standings of the lower classes and stuff. Yeah. It makes people feel like, oh, it doesn't actually work for us. Oh, they don't actually care what's going on and stuff like that. And due to the inherent nature of liberalism being, oh, we want slow progressive movements like towards basically a nothing that starts to ignite that frustration in those middle and lower classes to be very anti-establishment and stuff like that. Absolutely. No, that's a really good point because you have an entire class of people like the lower working classes who are suffering like in absolute dire need and they need something drastic. They need like a drastic change in the material conditions and the political conditions to make that happen. And they can't get it because we all know what it's like talking to liberals. Anytime you propose an actual policy that would actually make a significant difference in people's lives, they just have to water it down. They have to say, oh, that sounds too drastic. That sounds too pie in the sky. That doesn't sound realistic. That doesn't sound electable. Whatever word of the day they're choosing, it's always like some middling thing that continues to make things worse for people. And then they're surprised when things continue to get worse and eventually reach a breaking point. It's like they, they, they're, they are often given a solution that a great majority of a population would like. And then they decide to make uh, like a decision or in a proposition that a great majority of the nation doesn't end up liking <laughs> like like for yeah, example means testing so. yeah it's like for example like medicare for all is you know supported by a vast majority of people in the united states but what do liberals continuously like try to push oh we want the public option which you know it which <laughs> we want that Buttigieg shit yeah it's like which uh people have done studies and studies and studies against why the public option wouldn't actually be a good idea just based off of the size of the pool that would be in there but i agree okay so number seven the obsession with a plot thus at the root of the ur fascist psychology there is the obsession with a plot possibility and international one the followers must feel besieged yeah i would say yeah. that sounds about right i mean that's just QAnon. Right? Yeah. since we're because we keep relating this to the uh the modern day equivalent but yeah i mean people have to feel like it's either bill gates or leftists or blm and antifa who are out to get them they got to feel literally under siege yeah joe biden's gonna be the next joseph stalin you know it's <laughs> <laughs> if only i wish we got the wrong papa joe i'm an anarcho-bidenist so you know I, I can't say they're wrong you and cosper yep no gods no malarkey <laughs> We're gonna say word. Yeah, no. Um, like how they have to feel persecuted is I fucking hate. There's a few things I hate more, but it's fucking up there when conservatives quote the like they came for the Jews and I said nothing because I was Jewish, but they quote that fucking unironically. Yeah. Like ignoring all the fucking beginning of that poem. Ignoring that it starts with like, communists. Mm-hmm. So upset. Yeah. I mean, it's the fact that also a lot of conservatives are not self-aware enough to realize that the people that they support actively are playing into what that poem is about. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, it, 
that that is also one of the most inherently frustrating things that I have when I t- speak to conservatives is the fact that they do not realize how unself-aware that they are. Yeah. But I mean, I think it was what Goebbels that said, uh, accuse the enemy of that, which you were doing. And he was talking about the Jews. He was literally saying, I mean, he's attributing that to the Jews. He's saying that the Jews are attacking white area, like perfectly innocent, little poor little Aryan Germans. And then um, I think the, the one quote that they used was something like uh, the Jew cries out as he strikes you. As if, like, you know, it's like picture somebody like hitting you and saying, Ow, stop hitting me. And it's like, that's what they're doing politically. And that's literally what Goebbels is like. And on the one hand, acknowledging that they are doing, like, accuse your enemy of that which you were doing. But then at the same time, like, accusing his enemy of doing that. Like, it's just so, it's so, like, brain melting. Anyway, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, so, number eight, the enemy is both strong and weak. By continuous shifting of rhetorical focus, the enemies are at the same time too strong and too weak. Which, yeah, I mean, Ward was literally mentioning that before. I think it was before we started recording. Like that, to me, that is that is like the biggest hallmark of fascist movements, in my opinion. It's like, oh, the the Democrats are start trying to steal this election, but also they, the nobody voted for them. Like you know, it's like, you know. That's my favorite thing to ask conservatives when they, or like, you know, any of the closet Nazis, like ask them, pick one, whether they're talking about liberals, whether they're talking about immigrants, whether they're talking about BLM and Antifa, whether they're talking about Jews, if they're going mask off about it, like ask them, like, which is it? Either these people are inferior, like these Democrats are stupid and they can't hold a candle to you because they're all thinking emotionally and they're big snowflakes and they're not like, you know, operating on facts and logic. Or like these BLM and Antifa people are just resorting to violence because they have no arguments in the marketplace of ideas. Or these Jews are part of a Zionist cabal that's taking over the world. It's like, which is it? Are they inferior or are they taking over the world? Because it can't be both. Like either, either, yeah. like either you're superior and you're the master race and you are rightfully in the place of charge or you're really not that great to begin with. Like you're fucking up. I noticed a lot of conservative uh, like talking heads like Ben Shapiro and stuff like that. They often... They do, I don't think they all, uh, realize that episode to episode they'll contradict themselves in that way. Like talking about how Joe Biden is a closet socialist, Nancy Pelosi is basically uh, Lenin. Mm-hmm. But then in the exact same next episode, they'll be like, inherently, they don't actually want to change anything about the system. They're not trying to actually help you. Like, it's too perfect sometimes. It's too perfect. Yeah. Um, nine, uh, pacifism is trafficking with the enemy. For Ur fascism, there is no struggle for life, but rather life is lived for struggle. Sounds like working in America. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like working for Amazon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, um, you know, anytime you'll talk to somebody who's pro capitalism, they'll basically talk about, like, for example, like minimum wage conversations. They'll be like, well, the min- you're not supposed to have a, a one bedroom apartment, you know, off of a minimum wage just for high schoolers or, yeah. you know, they just want people. Th- th- what do you want? $30 an hour? Like, you know, like at least like when I was your age, no, it's totally realistic to have a whole economy resting on the shoulders of high schoolers. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Then it's like, but back when you, I was your age, I had two jobs and worked 70 hours a week. I'm like, don't you see that that's a problem? <laughs> <laughs> or don't you realize that like yeah. that $6 an hour you were making is $25 an hour now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like weird flex, but okay. <laughs> uh, contempt for the weak. Elitism is a typ- uh, typical aspect of any reactionary ideology. Yeah. 
I, I find that a lot of uh, these movements have a very anti-social safety net uh, yeah. like position where it's like, oh, if you're too poor to like afford food, I guess you'll die. Um, or like people pushing this like propaganda of like the nanny state and stuff like that, where yeah. they're like, oh, everybody just wants to live off of the government and like they don't, they're, they're too like uh, lazy to do anything anymore and stuff like that, you know? I also hate the fucking mindset where people have is like they think they're intelligent when they don't care about the suffering of others. Like, no, that doesn't make you smart or intelligent. It just makes you a fucking prick. Yeah, you're just a dickhead. Mm-hmm. Dunk. Yeah. <laughs> it's also like the same uh, when it comes to like when I tell people, I'm like, yeah, I gave that homeless guy on the street like a few bucks. They're like, they're just going to spend it on drugs. And I'm like, you don't you don't know who that person is. Yeah, I was going to do that. <laughs> That's <laughs> what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> It's like the difference between him getting like coke or weed or, or me getting coke or weed. Like I'll have more money to go grab some more, you know, like, and also it's one of those things where it's like, uh, you know, if you give like a money to a homeless guy and then they decide to go and, you know, buy something that, you know, maybe isn't food or something like that. Okay. Like I thought we were pro capitalism here. Like, you know, there's a demand that they have, you know, somebody's got the supply. Yeah. I thought you like people being able to vote with their dollar and buy what they want with their money in a true Free market doesn't get much freer market than drug dealing, but I also just like the the simultaneous thinking that you're smarter, you know, because you're like a conservative or whatever, and then hating on the liberal elites because they're educated and they're acting like they're better than you. It's like so you acknowledge on the one hand that these people have more education and behave in a way that is at least culturally more intelligent, like they speak better and everything, and then you're gonna go. And, you know, drink your Coors Light while listening to your country music and cool rolling in your truck and act like you're superior. All right. Uh, number 11 is everybody is educated to become a hero. In ur fascist ideology, heroism is the norm. This cult of heroism is strictly linked with the cult of death. We're all heroes. Fast food workers, nurses, troops, everybody's heroes. In the new COVID fascism. Just don't ask for more money. Yeah, don't ask yeah. for employee protections or PPE even. Just uh, just be a hero and suck it up. Yeah, don't ask for hero benefits either. You're just yeah. heroes. Or don't ask your government to stop sending uh, soldiers to nations that we uh, are the direct reason that they hate fucking hate us to just go and die uselessly for no reason. Wait, don't question the superheroes. Huh? We're just regular heroes. The military, those are like superheroes. Oh, okay. can't question right. that. I forgot, I forgot. Um... Machismo and weaponry. Machismo implies both disdain for women and intolerance and condemnation for non-standard sexual habits from chastity to homosexuality. I like guns, though. I mean, I like guns, too, yeah. But I'm just a dumb... I'm, a, I'm an idiot lib, so... This one would be more accurate if it was just machismo, not machismo and weaponry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I like guns, but I'm also cool with gay and trans people, so... Yeah. yeah. Well, I just think it's... I, I do think it's kind of funny because back uh, this past summer during like a lot of the uprisings and stuff, you would see a lot of like leftists like open carrying because in Wisconsin, you're allowed to open carry. And a lot of the time, some people who were like uh, actively protesting with those people would be like, hey, we don't want you here. You you know, you guys support the police and stuff like that. They're like, I'm here to protect you. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not here because I like just because somebody is a gun owner does not inherently mean that they are conservative. Yeah. Like, frankly, I think that if you do self-identify as a leftist, you should be one of the people who are saying armed. 
But yeah, we have um, a friend of the podcast, uh, Gray, over at uh, at Red Marksman. He uh, he guns up and runs security. Mm-hmm. Um, selective populism. There is in our future a TV or internet populism in which the emotional response of a selected group of citizens can be presented and accepted as the voice of the people. Wonder what that sounds like. <laughs> And then number 14 is the last one. Uh, Ur fascism speaks newspeak. All the Nazi or fascist school books made use of an impoverished vocabulary and an elementary syntax in order to limit the instruments for complex and critical reasoning. Which, I mean, in my opinion, it's one of those things where it's almost necessary to have that in a fascist movement because if you don't uh, provide information in a critical way, people are going to immediately find a lot of the inherent contradictions in fascist movements. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like you guys can speak more on that than I can, though. Well, I think that's where it comes in. Like, that's the necessary, that, that's what necessitates the framing of liberalism as opposed to fascism when they really aren't. And that's why you have so many people struggling to even identify fascism when it's right in their faces or thinking that the solution to fascism is capitalism or liberalism or democracy or whatever it is that they think is the solution because... As we all know, traditionally, from history, the solution to fascism is communism. It's the only thing that can mm-hmm. successfully beat fascism and continues to fight fascism on a principled basis. But uh, going back to like the intro paragraph, yeah, I think that's really where it comes down, is that you have an entire country of people now who are so blinded as to what the terms actually mean, and they're so confused about ideology and politics and political economy to begin with, that they can't even correctly address the problem, let alone find the actual solution to it. And that's intentional. You have to frame it that way because otherwise people would see the contradictions. Like you said, you have to confuse them just terminologically, like just, just with the terms, like at the most basic level. And that's where that, that new speak comes in, where liberalism yeah. is the end of history. And I also feel like here in the United States, especially since, um, you know, the twenties and the first red scare, there's been a weird conflation of ideological like labels, like where, People won't actually understand what those labels mean or what, you know, say you identify as a communist. Nobody actually knows what that means here in the United States. Mm -hmm. But then they'll accuse somebody of saying that person is a fascist and be like, oh, you just say everybody you don't agree with is a fascist. When you can point out like critically being like, well, this reason, this reason, and this reason, this person is a fascist. And then they said, oh, but socialists are fascists. Like, because... Here in the United States, there's been a weird conflation between leftist movements and fascism for some reason. Again, intentionally. I mean, intentionally, yeah. yeah. But it, and it's one of those things where that is, to me, the most frustrating thing that comes out of discussing political ideology with people. It's like, well, Nazis were nationalist socialists, so they were socialists, right? Then it's since it's not taught in school, like what these labels actually mean or in a more meaningful way, they don't actually have uh, conversations about these ideologies. You do have this weird conflation between ideologies that are diametrically opposed. Yeah. Would you have word? First off, the people that are like, oh, nationalist socialists, it, like they're socialists. It's like, oh man, wait till you find out about the tufted titmouse. Okay. <laughs> 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 well, is it not a mouse? No, it's a bird. Of course. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, like you're saying, like, it's been so far removed and there's so much lacking of political education in this country. Like, even whenever you try to, like, speak and say, like, somebody's fascist, 
Like you either get the response like you were saying where it's like, oh, you just call everybody you disagree with a fascist. Or you get this response where it's like people just think you're being hyperbolic. It's like, oh, don't be so ridiculous. It's like, because we're so detached from it now. It's like you call somebody a fascist. You like people think you're being hyperbolic or you're like, what are you talking about, dude? Like those are Indiana Jones villains, man. There's no fascists. Yeah. You notice the same people who say that you can't call everyone you disagree with a fascist, then call BLM and Antifa fascists because they disagree with them. Mm-hmm. Ironic. Or they call anybody who is a liberal or a leftist a communist. Yeah. Like we're not allowed to call people who are objectively fascist fascists, but then they'll call like uh like Nancy Pelosi a fucking anarchist or something. <laughs> like Yeah, the people that told you that communism is bad are the same ones that cozy up the fascists. Yeah, every time. It's fucking liberals. Just to expand on what I went through in the Italy section a bit ago, I had more here that I didn't realize I had left in the notes. Just talking about the origins of liberalism in Italy and how it eventually just aligned with the fascists. This was from an article uh, called European Fascism was Popular Because for Those Not Persecuted, It Was a Welfare State. Um, So this is just a little bit about the lead up to fascist Italy. Uh, just sort of, it's going to reiterate a couple of things here, but it's relevant. So they say the first world war had devastated Europe, killing 16 million people, maiming another 20 million, crushing economies and sowing turmoil. In Italy, for example, the post-war period saw high inflation and unemployment, as well as strikes, factory occupations, land seizures, and other forms of social unrest and violence. The liberal Italian governments of the post-war era failed to adequately address these problems. Take note of that. That's a, another pattern we're going to see. The liberals' constituencies, businessmen, landowners, members of the middle class, abandoned them. The country's two largest opposition parties, the Socialist PSI and the Catholic PPI, also offered literal effective redress to these basic social problems. Benito Mussolini and his National Fascist Party, the PNF, stepped into the breach, taking advantage of the failure or ineffectiveness of existing institutions, parties, and elites, and offering a mixture of national and social policies. It's just a mix of nationalism and socialism. What could go wrong with that? Yeah, a genie gives a liberal three wishes. He bargains himself down to one. And then wish for something a fascist would like. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good one. I can't believe I haven't heard that. I'm going to use that, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think the original is like Democrats and Republicans, but it works for liberals and fascists as well. Yeah. Absolutely, dude. I mean, when you're talking about Democrats and Republicans, you're basically saying liberals and fascists. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Semantics. So fascists promise to foster national unity, prioritize the interests of the nation above those of any particular group, and promote Italy's stature internationally. The fascists also appealed to Italians' desire for social security, solidarity, and protection from capitalist crises. They promised, therefore, to restore order, protect private property, and promote posterity, but also shield society from economic downturns and disruptions. Fascists stressed that wealth entailed responsibilities as well as privileges, and should be administered for the benefits of the nation. These appeals enabled the fascists to garner support from almost all socioeconomic groups. Italy was a young country, only formed in the 1860s, plagued by deep regional and social divisions. By claiming to serve the best interests of the entire national community, it was in fact the fascists who became Italy's first true people's party. But yeah, you could just see how they, they say all the right things, they grab whatever rhetoric they want from any type of ideology, whether it's socialism, capitalism, liberalism, they'll just grab whatever sounds good at any particular time in order to get power. And then once they get power, they outlaw all the other parties, they you know, execute whoever they want, and just act with full authoritarian iron fist conditions. Well, I mean, it's reactionary populism. Almost. Yeah. It's like they'll say whatever topically makes sense, even whether or not they mean it or not. 
that's the exact reason why you know nazis were called national socialists because there was at the time in germany a positive outlook on socialist uh you know groups since you know yeah whatever but uh yeah no i just that's all i want to say well no i mean that gets us right to germany because that's where we're going next now this is going back to uh, rock hill's article and he says the Nazis rose to power in much the same way, by working within the parliamentary system and courting the favor of big industrial magnates and bankers. The latter provided the financial support necessary to grow the Nazi party and eventually secure the electoral victory of September 1930. Hitler would later reminisce in a speech on October 19, 1935, on what it meant to have the material resources necessary to support 1,000 Nazi orators with their own cars would hold some 100,000 public meetings in the course of a year. In the December 1932 election, the Social Democrat leaders, who were far to the left of the contemporary liberals, but shared their reformist agenda, refused to form an 11th-hour coalition with the communists against Nazism. This is a quote from Michael Parenti. Quote, As in many other countries, past and present, so in Germany, the Social Democrats would sooner ally themselves with the reactionary right than make common cause with the Reds. End quote. Prior to the election, the Communist Party candidate Ernst Stellmann had argued that a vote for the conservative Field Marshal von Hindenburg amounted to a vote for Hitler and for war. Only weeks after Hindenburg's election, he invited Hitler to become chancellor. This makes me think of uh, Kamala calling Biden a racist and then be like, oh, yeah, I'll be your VP. Yeah. Well, it, I think it's actually like funny, like uh, looking back at like the earlier, like proto-fascist movements in Germany that could have actively been fought against as long as, you know, the liberals would have actually worked with like the social Democrats, socialists, communists and anarchists and stuff like that who were trying to actively combat them. Like when the Fry Corps was going around just beating the fuck out of people. Or in like, you know, killing socialists like indiscriminately. Yeah, I mean, the Social Democrats created the Fry Corps because it was like the better alternative to the violence and everything they were seeing in the streets. Yeah, because like the Fry Corps was made out of people who were like World War One veterans who like were coming home with like no jobs and stuff like that. And right. were trying to like, since they weren't in the army anymore, they were just trying to restore whatever sense of order or whatever they like order to them was. Yeah, this is actually from a Salon article. It was Friedrich Ebert and the Social Democratic Party of Germany siding with the conservatives and the nationalists that created the Fry Corps, private paramilitary groups composed of demobilized soldiers and malcontents. The Fry Corps ruthlessly crushed left-wing uprisings all over Germany. When the Fry Corps was not gunning down left-wing populists in the streets and carrying out hundreds of political assassinations, including the murder of Walter Rathnau, the foreign minister, it was terrorizing civilians, looting, and pillaging. The Fry Corps became the antecedent of the Nazi branchers, led by Ernst Röhm, a former Fry Corps commander. The operation by Weimar Germany's majority Social Democratic government to crush the communist-led revolt of 1919 showed just how far Social Democrats can go when the bourgeois system they align with is threatened. They sent in paramilitary forces to assassinate the leaders of the Spartacus League, including the communist Rosa Luxemburg. This prevented Germany from becoming socialist, which would have stopped it from becoming fascist, and kept the opposition to the fascists incurably divided throughout the decade leading up to when Hitler came to power. So, I mean, Germany is actually the one... I only have those couple short paragraphs on Germany in the notes here because... I feel like of all the fascist movements, that's probably the one obviously most people are familiar with. But I also feel like among the left, everybody knows about Rosa. Everybody knows that the Social Democrats killed Rosa. Everybody knows that they enabled fascism. So that is the er example of er fascism. I mean, that's like, that is the best example that I know of, of just liberals creating, enabling, siding with fascists against communists and socialists. Um, so I feel like we need to spend the least amount of time on that one. I was just actually looking because there was, I, I listened to this one podcast one. I can't remember it. 
is just like a podcast that goes over like leftist books and stuff like that. And there was one that was talking about uh, Germany's communist revolution and stuff and how the like leftist movements like grew and then ended up falling and stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. I was just going to recommend like that book, but I can't, I can't find it and I can't remember the name of it. Oh, here it is. It's from uh, Red Library on Spotify, The Lost Revolution, Germany, 1918 to 1923. You know, not to shout out too many other podcasts on this one, but no like that, worries. I I liked, I liked the way that they, uh, it wasn't necessarily like a Cliff Notes version of the book, but it was like, I don't know, I enjoyed it and it was really good. Um, yeah, you don't have yeah. to worry about shouting out another podcast on here. Mike shouts out all the time. That's about half the podcast is Mike shouting out other podcasts yeah. on this podcast. Yeah, I just didn't want to do it since I'm you know the the, the guest and stuff. No, but yeah, it. no worries. It was incredibly interesting and it went over the entirety of, you know, the rise and fall of, you know, the leftist movement in early uh, Weimar Republic era. I'm literally subscribing to other podcasts on the podcast. This next level. <laughs> so meta. If anybody goes to my, the, my group's podcast expecting it to be like this one or any other leftist one, they're going to be so disappointed. <laughs> Why? You guys are just about a little more middling, like to the, to the center or just like. I'm I'm the most left person on the podcast, and it's very. You're saying that, like, yeah, yeah, and I think you're the least left of us. Yeah, nah, it's probably pretty close. I don't identify as any particular label. If I had to, I would say I'm an ancom, but I know that there's a meme behind people who identify as ancoms as people who have just not read enough theory to identify as anything. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't even pretend that I've read a ton of theory. I've read very little theory for self-identified Marxist-Leninist, but. I do spend a good amount of time just immersing myself in all of this. And most of my theory reading is probably secondhand, like from listening to other podcasts, explain theory after they read it or, you know, watching YouTube videos of people explain theory in layman's terms, because yeah. I just find that much easier and more entertaining. And also I can do it while I'm working or something. <laughs> I can just have it in my ear. Yeah, that's exactly how I do it. Just because since I work 10 hour days and, you know, I'm in school and stuff, I don't necessarily have the time to like sit down and like read much. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's actually kind of funny because when you guys did the authoritarianism versus anarchism episode, it's funny because I was literally one of those people on there. I was just like, wait, why do they both have really solid points here? I'm like, I can't. Like, I've stopped using tanky as a derogatory term now. <laughs> we just like it. I love being a tanky. You look at my profile picture. It's a tank. <laughs> it's oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that the important part is that we all just Get along, man. Like, that's that's the whole thing. I mean, I feel like we accomplished our goal with that episode was just to, mm -hmm. I don't know, kind of prove that we can get along and that we actually do have a lot more in common than we than people may think. Uh, let's see. All right, so let's move on to uh, Spain during the Civil War in Franco. Um, so again, we're going to see another very recognizable pattern here. It was not only within Italy and Germany that bourgeois democracy allowed for the rise of fascism. This was also true internationally. Capitalist states refused to form an anti-fascist coalition with the USSR, a country that 14 of them had invaded and occupied from 1918 to 1920 in a failed attempt to destroy the world's first workers' republic. During the Spanish Civil War, which historians like Eric Hobsbawm have characterized as a miniature version of the great mid-century war between fascism and communism, Western liberal democracies did not officially support the left-leaning government that had been elected. Instead, they stood idly by while the Axis powers provided massive support to General Francisco Franco, as he oversaw a military coup d'etat. It is highly revealing that Franco, a self-declared fascist who was often sidelined in discussions of European fascism, 
understood with remarkable clarity why the epiphenomenal characteristics of fashion would differ considerably based on the precise conjuncture. So that's just a literally long-winded way of saying that fascism is, nev- is never the same twice. And like what we were getting at earlier in the episode, talking about how fascism always adapts, it always you know stands on the shoulders of previous fascist movements and codes its language a little more and just changes its skin. You know, fascism is always the wolf in sheep's clothing. And then sometimes it's an aardvark or sometimes it's just a cow. Like it's always some kind of different, slightly different animal that seems a little less threatening every time. Yeah, Marxism isn't the only adaptable ideology. Yeah, very true. I don't know why I went with aardvark. Well, it's like with that list, you know, that we went through, it's like not every single fascist movement is going to check every single box on that list. And I, I would argue that it's quite rare to find a fascist movement that checks every single box on that list, just because since fascism is inherently reactionary, a lot of the movements don't actually need to check every single box on that list to be considered fascist. I would almost argue that if a regime checks one of those boxes, you can consider it to be fascist. That might just be me slightly hyperbolic, but I think that a lot of those, I I would only say that just because when you start, when you check one, it becomes progressively easier to start checking the rest of them. You know what I mean? Like once you start that slide and you check the one, that's when you start checking the other ones going down the list. Once you, once you let that regime continue to stay in power. Only hesitant to agree with you because I know how many of them can be applied to communism yeah because i know that you know when you have what seems like totalitarianism or just something like again we're authoritarians here like me and ward being tankies like authority we just like it used for the left democratically in favor of workers and in favor of marginalized people against the fascists and capitalists but because capitalists and fascists love to play the victim they will always take as many of those qualifications as they can yeah and apply them to anti-fascists and that's what they do it's intentional cynical but yeah that's the only reason why i would hesitate to say that you don't need a majority i would say you need a good solid majority of the characteristics on that list to really qualify as fascist and i would say that the united states in its current form already embodies most of that list no matter which party is in power even with biden in office you know it's still nine out of 14 at least Mm -hmm. i'll just say let me adjust what i was saying before to be a little bit more precise i guess I think that the context in where they check the box uh, on that list is also kind of important. Like contextually, yeah, you can attribute some of the marks on that list to authoritative communist regimes. But I feel like the context behind how you check the box in like a communist regime versus a fascist regime are going to be different. Oh, definitely. So I don't I almost don't know if you could attribute some of those boxes in the way that they're meant to be like interpreted when you're talking about like a communist like i don't know an authoritarian communist uh regime i guess that's the crux of like like, the difference between what you and i are saying is that you could definitely call a regime fascist if you were able to attribute any one of those characteristics honestly if you are Mm -hmm. doing it dishonestly that's when you you know you get the cynical take like i was saying because you could easily like you could say being obsessed with history and culture but using it in a way that gives power to working people and saying like, oh, we love the cultures of all of the countries that make up this communist union and we want to embrace all of these cultures and then also use that embracing of culture to continue to give power to working people and the farming class or whatever. You know what I mean? That's very different than 
being obsessed with culture and saying, oh, it's because we're this Aryan race and we need to persecute all the people who don't look like us. Like those are two very different ways of being obsessed with culture and history. Um, but again, it really just comes down to whether you're applying them honestly or not. Yeah, like where Parenti was talking about it, where it's like they're just talking about bastardizing history and the actuality of the revolutions where you'll have liberals in like the West claiming that communists are hungry for power but in, in actuality, we are wanting power to end hunger. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very That's good point. difference. Yeah, it's, I think we're talking about the same way. We're saying the same thing. You guys are just way better at saying it than I am. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I meant to include in here that I forgot to was uh, Michael Parenti's quote about anarchists and liberals the day after the revolution being so concerned whether the fascists have their newspapers, whether the fascists have freedom of speech and freedom yeah, to assemble. The, yeah, do the fascists get civil liberties? Do the fascists have rights? <laughs> Very concerned about that as a liberal. The revolution that feeds the children gets my support. Hell yeah, buddy. All right, so let's see. Going back to Spain and Franco. I remember where I left off. While you find it, I just have to say color corrected Parenti is revisionist. Yellow Parenti <laughs> is based. Yellow Parenti is the only Parenti. Exactly. Um, okay, so going back, the, the thing that I left off on was the very long-winded way of saying that fascism is different every time it arises. Um, so this is a quote from Franco himself. He says, fascism, since that is the word that is used, fascism presents, wherever it manifests itself, characteristics which are varied to the extent that countries and national temperaments may vary. Okay, yeah, that was a Franco quote, just making sure. It was the USSR that came to the aid of the Republicans battling fascism in Spain, sending both soldiers and materials. Franco would later return the favor, so to speak, by deploying a volunteer military force to fight godless communism alongside the Nazis. Franco would also, of course, become one of the great post-war allies of the United States in its fight against the Red Menace. Who could have expected that? I hope we don't expect a theme to happen from there. <laughs> yeah, I want to see, see that circular Venn diagram of anti-communists and fascists. Mm -hmm. I did put a bunch of things in here about the background behind Franco coming to power. Considering how... How far are we are already? I don't think I'm going to spend too much time on that. Let me skip ahead a little bit. I was about to say, we got a lot left of this pace bin, too. I know, dude. I know. Um, so let's skip ahead a little bit. So in July 1936, Francisco Franco staged a fascist coup attempt in Spain. The quick reaction of the Spanish people prevented Franco's coup from immediate success. The quick response developed the incident into a civil war. The nationalist forces Franco headed would fight for traditionalism, monarchism, and fascism. The Republican side fought to safeguard democracy, but was quickly taken over by various leftist factions. Anarchists took hold in Catalonia, but the communists backed by the Soviet Union would ultimately be the dominant faction. And this is where most American volunteers would serve in the war. Around 3,000 Americans volunteered to fight for the Republican Spanish. The Communist Party, CPUSA, oversaw the transport of these men to Spain, and even this relatively low number had exceeded their expectation. The number of volunteers reflected how the Spanish Civil War had captivated the American left. The Daily Worker devoted one-third of its front-page coverage to the war a week after the conflict's start. Once they arrived in Spain, most men would join the Abraham Lincoln Brigade with the communist-led Popular Front. This brigade is one of the first instances of American anti-fascism, and it was a leftist movement. While they served with the communists, not every volunteer was a communist. The bulk of volunteers were leftists with experience in labor strikes and had a passing interest in Marxist writing. There wasn't ideological unity beyond general leftist ideas. What united the volunteers was their dedication to fighting fascism internationally. From these commonalities, the volunteers developed various political ideas during their time in Spain. Connections between liberalism and fascism, appreciation for the Soviet Union, and a growth in internationalism would be their main developments. These ideas came from the reaction to the war and from their own experiences in the war. 
When liberal nations saw the Spanish Civil War, they decided to stay neutral. America, France, and the UK all signed neutrality agreements. The volunteers saw these neutrality agreements as little more than giving the fascists the full reign over the conflict, and that the agreements indirectly supported the fascist cause. They saw the continuation of indirect fascist support and the ideas of appeasement from the UK and France and isolationism in America. Meanwhile, the Soviets backed the Republicans and helped the CPUSA get the volunteers to Spain, despite the neutrality agreements the U.S. signed. Where liberal nations failed, the Soviets came in, and volunteers noticed this. The volunteers came to see the Soviets and communist movements in a more positive light due to their aid, while liberal nations lost their reputation among the volunteers due to inaction. This is slightly off topic, but I actually recently just ordered a CNT flag to hang on my wall. Hell yeah. I've got a March 26 movement flag, uh, Black Panther flag. I'm getting a good collection of the different uh, left-wing movements. Oh, yeah. Um, so that's pretty much what I have for Spain. Obviously, you can see the same kind of pattern emerging. You have, you know, a bourgeois class, wants stability, wants an end to the violence, don't really care if the working classes are suffering. We just need it to go on. All right, fascist, yeah, go ahead. Just keep things civil for me. And one thing I will say, like Spain... I find Spain and the Spanish Civil War to be an incredibly interesting topic, but um, I feel like it is both an example in how liberalism indirectly and oftentimes directly assists fascist movements, but then I also think it is a good example of why if leftist causes or a leftist uh, resistance to fascism isn't united, then fascism will divide us and you know kill us all. I think it's almost a perfect example of when, you know, the anarchists were fighting like on the front lines and then they get, you know, start getting shot by their communist allies for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, when there's that infighting, you cannot properly fight against the actual threat, which is fascism. Cause at the end of the day, all of us don't want fascism, you know? So, yeah, I forget. Um, I think I wrote down what article that was from. Yeah. It'd be nice if we could get everyone just like formed together and unified in like some kind of like vanguard or something. I don't know. Somebody probably wrote a book about it. <laughs> well, uh, I, a book, one of the books that I really enjoyed, uh, was, uh, Chomsky's on anarchism, which I, I don't remember everybody's opinion on Chomsky. I know that, uh, he's a relatively hit or miss person for a lot of people. Mostly ambivalent here, I guess. Yeah. Uh, his book on anarchism is really good because he actually, does a very deep dive into the Spanish Civil War from the Republican perspective and the um, anarchist uh, movement that happened within the Republican uh, side of that Civil War. And it's, it's a very good read. It's solid um, for anybody who is trying to learn more about that conflict. It's, it's, very, it's very good. Yeah, I like On Authority by Engels and Anarchism or Socialism by Stalin. I like those. Uh, I mean as far as like what you were saying earlier about the need of leftists of different ideologies to unite if they want to present any kind of real threat to fascism that was what surprised me about that little passage that I just read that was actually from someone's website and it was like an article that they wrote about how the Spanish Civil War influenced the anti-fascist movement in America and the way they were writing that the important part for me is as far as this episode is concerned is that you know, it was only the leftists and the communists of different stripes who were fighting the fascists and presenting any kind of real defense or any kind of real threat to them. But at the same time, the way that they were describing it seems a little, I don't think the word is optimistic. It seems a little um, rosy. 
they paint a very rosy picture of how that actually worked. And I like to, you know, think of the communists and the anarchists and all the different stripes of socialists getting along and fighting the fascists, but obviously they couldn't have got along well enough to present the threat because they didn't win. You know, the fascists took over and they ruled for a very long time. So, but yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. That does give us the lesson that we, that we do need to work together. All right. Since we've been going at it for an hour and 40 minutes already, and we still have about half of the notes left, let's try and blow through some stuff real quick. Let's move on to uh, Japan. So Japan is a little different and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on them because one, it's the, country that I'm the least familiar with. <laughs> like everything I know about fascism rising in Japan, I learned in the last 48 hours. But um, I will say their situation is a little different because they already had a monarchy. And, but basically you, you will see some very familiar elements of the pattern here. So Japan set up a parliament they called a diet. I'm assuming it's diet because it's spelled like diet and I don't think it's diet. So Japan set up a parliament or a diet in the late 19th century. However, real power remained in the hands of the Japanese emperor and the genro which was retired Japanese statesmen who served as informal advisors to the emperor. The Diet did not have the power to make decisions and make its own policies. It could only question the decisions of the cabinet ministers. They had no control over the ministers as they're under direct control of the emperor. So the government was corrupt, and it would often pass laws in, in favor of the military or the zaibatsus. Yeah, so zaibatsus translates to financial clique. And it's a Japanese term refer, referring to industrial and financial vertically integrated business conglomerates in the empire of Japan. So mega corporations, basically, the, you know, the version of those back then, uh, whose influence and size allowed control over significant parts of the Japanese economy from the Meiji period until the end of World War II. The democratic leaders failed to solve the problems of the farmers, which was a huge portion of the population. By the 1920s, nearly half the farmers in Japan had less than one and a quarter acres of land. This is only about the size of a soccer field. These farmers could not make any profit as they could not grow more rice on their plots. Worse still, the other half of the farms in Japan belonged to landlords who rented out the lands at very high prices to the tenants. Between 1920 and 1929, rice prices fell and made life even more difficult for rice farmers. The earnings of rice farmers fell by more than 50%. Tenant unions reacted to high rents through violence. Are we seeing a pattern here? <laughs> Worsening economic conditions, rising worker violence, yeah, corrupt government. Uh, in 1921, 25,000 workers went on strike in Tokyo. Workers in Japan lived in crowded, unhygienic rooms provided by their companies. They worked more than 10 hours a day. Some workers were even locked in their company compounds. They could only leave a few times each month. Impatient with the government, many workers joined unions, some of which were supported by the communists. And this sort of gets us into some of the territory of the Second Sino-Japanese War, which again, I really know very little about. Like, again, anything that I do know I learned in the last 48 hours just looking up for this topic. But... I think we're all vaguely aware of like the atrocities that the Japanese soldiers committed in, in China. You know, everybody's heard of like the incidents in Nanking. Um, but this is all more of that familiar tale that we hear of far right reactionary militias, you know, taking out their aggressions on civilians, trade unionists, communists, leftists, anybody who poses a threat to the fascist order that they want to instill. So the period after World War I brought about increasing stress on the Japanese polity. Leftists saw universal suffrage and greater rights for workers. Increasing textile production from Chinese mills was adversely affecting Japanese production, and the Great Depression brought about a large slowdown in exports. All of this contributed to militant nationalism and the rise to power of a militarist faction. I did put some stuff in here about the Second Sino-Japanese War, but I'm going to skip that for now. So you basically had this, again, another population of 
really depressed workers who are just looking for any solution. And that's where they find the ideology of fascism, hypernationalism, militarism. And this was also, again, I keep saying Japan is a unique situation, but they did have this kind of in their culture as outlined here. Uh, from the 1890s, the education system of Japan emphasized nationalism, loyalty to the emperor, self-sacrifice, and obedience. Japan's response to the effect of the Great Depression and foreign opposition to Japan's growing empire was the inauguration of the Showa Restoration, which meant bright harmony. This movement characterized Western values as being selfish, greedy, and individualistic. The emperor was glorified, and Japanese virtues such as self-sacrifice and service of nation were promoted. The slogan, Sono Joy, or Restore the Emperor and Expel the Barbarian, was often used. The movement produced youths who were blindly loyal to the emperor and the nation. They also believed in militarism and an aggressive foreign policy. So again, if you look up anything about the rise of fascism in Japan, it's really odd that like people try not to use that term. More like the the quote unquote objective sources, like anything that's like centrist or you know is not explicitly leftist. Basically, will hesitate to call even Japan as an Axis power they'll hesitate to call it fascist, which is odd to me because they were aligned with Hitler. Like, it seems pretty obvious, but I guess because it never identified itself as fascist and because of its history of being militaristic, nationalistic, and monarchist, um, they hesitate to just outright call it fascist. But as we can see, all the telltale signs are there and all the telltale causes for it are there. Do you guys have anything? Yeah. We can move on to Chile. Well, I mean, just the only thing I'll say about Japan, like as a great example, like in the you know, in like a lot of the massacres that happened, like in Nanjing and stuff like that, these massive atrocities happen on like civilian uh, populations due to this overabundance of this idea of machismo and aggression that a lot of these fascist movements propagate. Like um, when you're telling you know, your soldiers that you need to be killing machines, you gotta, you know, go and get eliminate the enemy at all costs and stuff like that. It's almost setting the groundworks for massive, you know, atrocities like that to happen and they're almost to be expected. And I think that since that is a very common thread in many of these fascist movements, it's it's one of those things where, you know, when you have a fascist regime and you are at war, expect the worst to happen to the people who deserve it the least. Yeah, very true. Um, all right, so let's move into the more modern era. I want to just talk a little bit about Chile, uh, Pinochet and Allende, and the Chicago Boys. So I've mentioned the Chicago Boys previously. I think I mentioned them in like the Reagan episode or, again, some other time that we talked about neoliberalism. But the reason I harp on the Chicago Boys so much, for anybody who's not familiar, is because they were like outright fascist, but they still get the cover of being just like neoliberal economists. Like there are still Chicago Boys who graduated from the University of Chicago that are still like publishing, like they're still active. They're still like holding offices and stuff. Like they're not, they're alive and well, like it, it sucks, but like it's, the, it's the truth. And it's because they get this whitewashing. Um, but anyway, just for background, the Chicago boys were a group of Chilean economists prominent around the 1970s, 1980s, the majority of whom were educated at the department of economics of the University of Chicago under Milton Friedman and Arnold Harburger, or at its affiliate in the economics department at the Pontifical Catholic University of Chile. Upon their return to Latin America, they adopted positions in numerous South American governments, including the military dictatorship of Chile, which was from 1973 to 1990. As economic advisors, many of them reached high positions within those. While the Heritage Foundation credits them with transforming Chile into Latin America's best-performing economy and one of the world's most business-friendly jurisdictions, I love that take from the Heritage Foundation. That's pretty good. 
Uh, critics point to drastic increases in unemployment that can be attributed to counterinflation policies implemented on their advice. Some, such as the Nobel laureate Amartya Sen, have argued that these policies were deliberately intended to serve the interests of American corporations at the expense of Latin American populations. No way. No. I mean, Latin America, especially with a lot of their fascist and militarist regimes and stuff, you know, Latin America is almost one of the most unique, you know, situations because it's like you can, you can outright attribute every single one of their uh, fascist regimes and fascist takeovers to the United States and to the United States providing either CIA aid or actual like funding to just these groups. Um, being Hispanic myself, like this South America and the different revolutions and stuff interests me a lot. And it's one of those things where it's like the common thread is always the United States when it mm-hmm. comes to why fascist governments got, uh, you know, put in power. Like, like in Guatemala, like they fully had like a socialist government, a popular socialist government in the 1950s. And they were directly thrown uh, overthrown by the CIA in concert with the United Fruit Company. Yep. And <laughs> which is like where Che Guevara got, uh, you know, radicalized, which I mean, I guess a good thing came out of that. But uh, yeah, so I, South America, it's, it's very unique in how their fascist regimes are, for the most part, not natural. They are basically they are implanted 90 percent of the time or they are directly fueled by the United States. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's a weird take, but I guess we have the Dulles Brothers and the CIA to thank for Shea and Fidel. Yeah. <laughs> in a way. Thank you, CIA. We have a communist Cuba now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, so, I mean, just that first paragraph, that's just the intro paragraph to, like, the Chicago Boys on their Wikipedia page. I mean, it doesn't sound bad when you, when you describe it that way and you plug in, like, a favorable quote from the Heritage Foundation as well. But if you actually look into what that means, like, what the Chicago Boys are responsible for, it's neoliberal austerity in South America. It's Policies that make life harder for working people that result in just mass death and, you know, unemployment and all these like terrible things that affect working class people, but look good on paper for the economy. They look good for American corporations. So they skate by and they get favorable praise in the media. But in case that weren't enough, in case like, you know, just really squeezing the working classes to the point that they die is not enough to consider them bad. This is the caravan of death. So the Caravan of Death was a Chilean army death squad that, following the Chilean coup of 1973, flew by helicopters from south to north of Chile. During this foray, members of the squad ordered or personally carried out the execution of at least 75 individual communists held in army custody in certain garrisons. According to the NGO Memoria y Justicia, the squad killed 97 people. Augusto Pinochet was indicted in December 2002 in this case, but he died four years later without having been judged. His trial, however, is ongoing since his and other military personnel and a former military chaplain have also been indicted in this case. Let's see. I'm going to read this passage, but I may cut it just because it's like, it's really fucked up. Um, So if I do leave this in here, trigger warning for anybody who is averse to descriptions of violence and death. But so the group traveled from prison to prison in a Puma helicopter, inspecting military garrisons and then ordering or carrying out themselves the execution of the detainees. The victims were then buried in unmarked graves. General Joaquin Lagos explained why he didn't return the bodies of the 14 executed prisoners to their families. He says, quote, I was ashamed to see them. They were torn into pieces, so I wanted to put them together, at least leave them in a human form. Yes, their eyes were gouged out with knives, their jaws broken, or their legs broken. At the end, they gave them the coup de grace. They were merciless. The prisoners were killed so that they would die slowly. In other words, sometimes they would shoot them by parts. First the legs, then the sexual organs, then the heart. In that order, the machine guns were fired. But yeah, these were like ruthless killings. And that's, again, I, I know we've said it before in the podcast, but just to reiterate for anybody, anybody who brings up the helicopter memes, 
they're referencing Pinochet and the Caravan of Death, because um, that's something they would also do is drop them out of helicopters. And that's where you get like the Hans Hermann Hoppe physical removal thing. We never really did get to Hans Hermann Hoppe on the Trashing on Incaps episode. We do have to have Ethan and Nino back to uh, finish talking about him and Thomas Sowell and whoever else we want to maybe go in depth on Ayn Rand since we have uh, that speech that we could spend hours on just dissecting it line by line. True. But that's where, yeah, that's where physical removal and all that stuff comes from. That's like, it's for some reason, I guess it's like a meme, but it also seems to be like the literal method of choice for executing communists for right-wingers and neoliberals is to drop them out of helicopters. So sounds pretty fascist to me. I can thank you guys for actually explaining that meme to me. I never fucking understood it. Yeah. I would see those sometimes on like Instagram or like Facebook and I'm like, what the f-? I'm like, I don't get it. And then when you guys explained, I was like, Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. It's super <laughs> fucked up. Yeah. But again, like this is why I'm saying like, this is so ridiculous because Chicago boys, economists, like even like Milton Friedman, like the people who are responsible for that they still get touted as just like reasonable people. as just like, you know, economists who know about free markets and, you know, know the way that we should organize the world. It's like the fact that they are not vilified more than someone like Stalin just shows how far right of a country we already live in. You know what I mean? The Federalist Society is the Chicago boys of our era now, in my opinion. I think that they are, they could potentially pose just as big of a uh, damaging like threat to the United States, in my opinion. And they're being more effective at it than the Chicago boys were. Yeah, I just found this thing that was misplaced. Apparently, I put this in here from the notes on Japan. There was this thing called the Kokuhonsha. The Kokuhonsha was founded in 1924 by conservative minister of justice and president of the House of Peers. It called on Japanese patriots to reject the various foreign political isms, such as socialism, communism, Marxism, anarchism, etc., in favor of a rather vaguely defined, quote, Japanese national spirit or Kokutai. The name Kokuhon was selected as an antithesis to the word Minpon, from Minpon Shugi, the commonly used translation for the word democracy, and the society was openly supportive of totalitarian ideology. Yeah, it sounds like fascism. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, I don't know anything about India. I did want to touch on India, but again, I just don't know anything off the top of my head, and I wasn't able to find anything good, but I bet, I, I just bet dollars to donuts. If I were to look up the situation in India and Again, I also still don't know much about Modi. I just know from my conversations with people online that they compare him to Bolsonaro, Trump, Farage, like any of the current fascist, you know, political thought leaders. But anyway, if I could, yeah, go ahead. If I could mention one that I definitely would uh, openly declare to be a fascist regime, Israel. Oh, to yeah. me, that they check every single one of the boxes that they could. Um, but you know, it's. Uh, I know it's kind of a bit of a hot take to openly call them a fascist, uh, you know, uh, state just because, you know, you get that uh, reactionary take of being like, oh, you're just an anti-Semite or something like that. But that is just another example of a modern day, you know, fascist uh, regime that is still active, you know, 100 percent and being actively supported by the United States. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the key. It's like they're supported by. Not only like the conservatives, but also the liberals right here in America. Like there's a huge liberal contingent for supporting Zionism. It's funny because you haven't heard the episode we just recorded on Thursday night, but we just did an entire episode on the origin of the modern state of Israel and how it basically is just an apartheid ethno state. And it's just fascism in practice. And it's just so ironic that it's being conducted by Jews using the Holocaust as the justification for it. It's just sad and it's unfortunate. 
But yeah, that is the case. And again, because I think that what we're going to do is actually release that episode on the premium feed because um, it's just me, Warden, Jaron. And then this one, since we have a guest, we would like you to be able to like post it as well on your own feed if you want. We'll release this okay. one on like our regular feed. So most people will hear this and then fewer people will hear that episode. But I want to point out, just so nobody confuses us for anti-Semites, like it is literally anti-Semitic to assume support for Israel and Zionism from Jews. Like you are literally speaking for all Jews if you assume that Zionism and Jewishness are one and the same. Like if you assume that opposing Zionism and opposing Israel is anti-Semitic, you are taking away the agency of all Jews and you are assuming that they all support Israel, the state of Israel and Zionism, which is not the case. And so it's, that's why it's so, it's such a shitty argument. It's a dishonest one because it is literally anti-Semitic to assume that people criticizing Israel are anti-Semitic. That makes sense. And it's also such a cop out like argument. It, it takes no critical like thought to just be like, oh, but you, you're just an anti-Semite. Like there, there's no like thought process behind like an argument like that. It's very much just like like a, an offensive strategy to just to make you backtrack on what you were saying. It's just a baby brain response. Yeah, well, I've never heard anyone who says that like have a response to anti-Zionist Jews. I've never heard what their explanation is for the existence of. Our friend Jaron, like, <laughs> go ahead, words yeah. out. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say, like, most people in the U.S. like don't spend any time thinking about their political beliefs at all. They just repeat something that they've been told. Yeah, sadly. All right, so let's wrap it up um, just with Brazil, because this was, I mean, not gonna say fun, but if there is a fun part of this episode tonight, it'll be this one because I just took this pretty much this entire article from the BBC that was published in 2018. And the title was Brazilians have elected the far right candidate Jair Bolsonaro as their new president. Which groups support him and why? And this is just going to be, this is gonna be I mean, fun. We, can just, we need a checklist. We should just have like a little physical checklist that we can just check boxes on. Oh, bingo cards. They separate. Yeah, bingo. They separate into categories. Um, so those worried about rising violence. For many Brazilians, tackling violence is the number one priority. Mr. Bolsonaro put tackling crime at the center of his campaign. Then remember, this is 2018 when he was just elected, so nobody knew just how shitty this guy was going to be and like how much of a fascist he was, except for the leftists, we knew. Last year, there were a record 63,880 murders in Brazil, and his supporters say violence has gotten out of hand. Mr. Bolsonaro wants to liberalize gun laws, reduce the age of criminal responsibility to 16, and give more powers to the police to shoot criminals. Which is like, I don't know, if anybody who spends any time on the internet, you have definitely seen videos of undercover cops shooting people in Brazil. Like to the point that like if you see a video of somebody trying to rob a place and somebody just comes up out of nowhere and shoots them, you automatically know it's an undercover cop in Brazil or a plainclothes cop or an off-duty cop in Brazil. Yeah, so much so like the jokes online, like in forums and like comment sections of like those kind of videos it from Brazil where it's like, yeah, everyone in Brazil is an undercover cop. Yeah. <laughs> Russia has dash cam videos, Brazil has, you know, criminals getting shot by plainclothes cops. Um, okay, let's, let's see. Sorry, I don't say I do got to get going here in a minute. Oh, okay. Um, this will take about, I don't know, I would say this could take about 10 to 20 more, 20 more minutes. If you have to get going now, you can. Yeah, I do got to get going. No, it's no problem. I push, we we I, ran I, over I time. Like, I, I wrote way too many notes, and I didn't think it was going to take us this long. But um, let's do like, uh, we'll do like a little outro, and then um, when the me award will just continue when you go. Okay, cool. Um, all right, so we want to thank Daniel for coming on from 262 Talks. Uh, podcast based out of Kenosha, Wisconsin. 
Uh, Daniel, is there anything you want to plug? Anything you want to tell our listeners about so they can find you online? Uh, I just want to plug my own, you know, podcast. Uh, it's not, you know, the most leftist podcast. It's more of just like a political, like commentary on like uh, the events that are going on throughout the uh, days and weeks and stuff like that. We do have a lot of fun. It's a lot of different perspectives on there. So it is, you know, we, we have a good time. You can catch us on uh, Facebook, uh, Spotify, and then just generally anywhere you can get uh, podcasts. I also, I had a great time. I'm a really big fan of you guys. Not to, not to sound too much of like a simp, but I, I had a really nice, I was, you know, yeah, I was really nervous actually. <laughs> That's adorable. Well, thank you so much, man. That's actually like, it makes me feel good. It's the first time we've ever talked to like somebody who's a fan of the show. Um, oh yeah. I was actually surprised when you guys responded. I was just like, I was like, Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, I would agree, man. This was a lot of fun. It was definitely great having you on. You had a lot of good stuff to say and we appreciate your input and having you come on and talk with us. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. Let me know if you guys ever want to talk about uh, Cuba. I, I love talking about that. <laughs> I actually will. I probably will hit you up this coming week. Cause I need to record. Uh, I recorded one interview, a very short one with um, Matt who runs this American left on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And they talked about his trip to Cuba and what it was like there. And then I have another friend of a friend that I'm going to interview um, because we had such a short conversation. I want to make it like a basically like a double episode and put his interview in there as well. But maybe I can make it three parts and put them all in one episode and you can come on and just talk about Cuba as well. Cool. Yeah, I love talking about the Cuban Revolution and then how the Cuban economic system works. I, that, that is just a topic that's interested me a lot. So, you know, yeah, let me know. Cool. All right, well, thanks again for coming on, man. I'll talk to yeah, you later. I appreciate you guys. Talk to you later. Solidarity, man. See you. Bye. All right. So me and Ward will just finish wrapping up this uh, article from the BBC about Bolsonaro and why people love him so much. <laughs> uh, I don't feel on my bingo card. Okay, so I know, dude, it's crazy. So, yeah, the last thing we left off was Mr. Bolsonaro wants to liberalize gun laws, reduce the age of criminal responsibility to 16, and give more powers to the police to shoot criminals. What a nice guy. So here's another category of people who support Bolsonaro. Those sick of the Workers' Party. When Workers' Party candidate Luis Inacio Lula da Silva became president in 2003, there was huge hope he would change the country. Lula governed during a time of great economic growth and millions of people were lifted out of poverty with help from his government-run social programs. Sounds pretty good to me. That's great. Now, later on, there was a recession during Lula's administration, and Lula was found guilty of corruption and is serving a 12-year prison sentence. Um, since this article is from 2018, from, yeah, from 2018, he was released in 2019 in December. So he's out and he actually is most likely going to run again. And it looks like he will probably do well because people are not happy with the way Bolsonaro has been acting. Well, yeah. But also I wanted to note here for more in-depth info about Brazil and the sham trials for corruption, because that whole shit was like an obvious kangaroo court. Again, it's just way too much to go into at the very end of our episode here, but I would check out uh, the Rev Left episode from November in 2018 uh, called Battleground Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, the military dictatorship and fascism. They do a really good job of explaining exactly how corrupt the quote unquote anti-corruption movement in the Brazilian government when Bolsonaro was. So Lula's successor uh, in office, Dilma Rousseff, was impeached for illegally manipulating the government budget. This has led to a lot of hatred toward the Workers' Party. So basically... They're not going to say it in this article from BBC, but basically, like I'm saying, this was this kangaroo, like obvious sham trial set up, but it was designed to do that, to create this reaction because they were able to then blame the Workers' Party for anything that was going wrong in Brazil and say it was because they were corrupt. So here's somebody, an example of the type of Brazilian citizen who is very upset about this corruption. 
Tomei Abduk, who owns a construction company in Sao Paulo, is one of those who is fed up. Quote, we can no longer have a leftist government in Brazil. It destroyed our country, he says. He goes on. It put corrupt people in positions of power in Brazil, and corruption is one of the biggest reasons why Brazil has failed to develop. Bolsonaro has a very clear and transparent way of doing politics. He's run a completely impartial campaign. He's not accepted public money or money from business people, so he's been able to run a campaign that's completely free of any compromises or political agreements, he says. Don't you love that? Don't you love when somebody who owns a company says that Donald Trump is donating all of his salary, you know, for being president to charity, so therefore he's not corrupt at yeah, all? Right. And, uh, you know, any of the backdoor deals that you're thinking are going on, not really going on, and all the convenient relationships between the businesses and the government are just coincidental. Yeah, what are you talking about, man? Things are great. It's just the same exact thing here. Oh, here's another category of people who support Bolsonaro. Business people. As Jair Bolsonaro rose in the polls, so too do Brazilian stocks. No way. Oh. You mean that, you know, economic markets like stock markets are more favorable to fascism than somebody who's actually going to institute some social programs? No way. So, so too do Brazilian stocks. Investors saw the far-right candidate as a safer pair of hands than his left-wing rival, Fernando Haddad. Leo Fracal is a wealthy Brazilian businessman from Porto Alegre. He runs an investment fund focused on Brazil and has also donated $3.77 million to fund the military police of Rio Grande do Sul. Thanks to his donation, they now have Glock pistols and better body armor. Oh. You can't, like, you cannot make this shit up, dude. Oh. Like, that's a level of corruption that I don't even think we have here in America. Yeah. Like, somebody just openly donating millions of dollars to the police to give them better weapons and let them shoot criminals better. Yeah, no, we at least have, like, shell companies for that. Yeah. But he says, quote, Brazil is probably the wealthiest country in the whole world by natural means, he says. You don't need to be a miracle performer to build a huge economy. You just need the government to get out of the way. Just less regulation, buddy. Yeah, for your market, for your people, uh, right? Something like that. Uh, so he sees Bolsonaro as the only candidate with the guts to make the changes he wants to see. Quote, he's the first person that says criminals should go to jail. Yeah, no way. Whoa. <laughs> no shit. A revolutionary. <laughs> Mr. Fercal says he also has great trust in Mr. Bolsonaro's economic advisor, Paulo Guedes. He says, quote, I don't need a genius to run my country. I just need someone with initiative not to mess it up, he concludes. Yeah, that government <laughs> governs best, which governs least, I'm sure. Yeah. Here's another group that supports Bolsonaro. Evangelicals. Surprise. Evangelical Christians who make up, <laughs> who make up 29% of all Brazilians were one of the groups who supported Mr. Bolsonaro in greatest numbers. According to the last pre-election poll, 61% of evangelicals were planning to cast their votes for him. Mr. Bolsonaro himself describes himself as Roman Catholic, but his Christian rhetoric and his slogan, quote, Brazil above everything, God above all, won over many in the evangelical community. Is there like a better contradictory? six-word fascist slogan? Like... No, I mean, it makes sense. Like, you have Brazil above everything and then God above all. So, yeah, I mean, you have, like, Brazil and then just above that is God. But, like, that's the perfect fascist nationalist slogan. It's like oh, yeah. nationalism, religion. Mm -hmm. Those are the only two alt-right values. That's all we need. You don't need anything else. Luciana Alves is a presenter on an evangelical radio station in Rio de Janeiro. Quote, he believes in the word of God and in my principles, she says. He's against the legalization of abortion because that goes completely against God's word. He's also against the legalization of drugs. Ms. Alves is also critical of what she calls, quote, the sexualization of children. She says, the Bible says God made man and woman, and in my opinion, gender ideology confuses children. It deconstructs what God built, she says. During the campaign, Mr. Bolsonaro alleged that the rival workers' party had handed out, quote, gay kits in schools, something he strongly criticized. What? Dude, it's like, what? okay, what are, I guess what that's are, their version of transgender bathrooms. Dude, what are in these gay kits? I'm, I'm dying to know myself. I'm Googling it right now. No, I, I have something in here. It was basically, it was fake news. It was like, he was referring to a workers' party plan to launch a, quote, Brazil without homophobia program in schools. As part of the program, 
material to promote respect for diversity and end discrimination was designed for teachers. The material was never distributed, and Brazil's Superior Electoral Court debunked the talk of the, quote, gay kit as fake news. Nevertheless, it continued to be a talking point with Mr. Bolsonaro's supporters, such as Ms. Alves. Quote, it's totally against biblical principles, and Bolsonaro agrees with me, so he represents me, she says. He's a candidate who respects God. A person who doesn't respect God respects nobody. What it doesn't say is, like, they developed these gay kids, and to the point where, like, they made a couple for the review mm-hmm. before they got sent out, and then that's when they were like, no, we're going to suspend this. <laughs> like, so it got pretty close. From what I understand is that, yeah, the fear-mongering was that it was some kind of gay kit, but they never got as far as, you know, the fake news and the fear-mongering made it seem because there's just such a strong backlash against it that they decided to just not go through with it anyway. So it's like... If there wasn't backlash, they would have just went through. The far right, trying so desperately to be oppressed <laughs> and then actually undoing whatever... It's just to a T. It's like, like I was saying before, it's the reaction. It's mm-hmm. like saying that something that's saying, don't discriminate against gay people, don't be a homophobe, don't be a bigot... Oh my God, you're persecuting us. You're persecuting us religious people and you're, you're going you're gonna to ruin us. You're going to kill us. And it's like, okay, well, we won't do this uh, nice thing for, you know, anti-homophobia that we were going to do. Um, so that's what I had for Brazil. Basically, I just liked that article because it was so funny because, yeah, it was like, if I was going to try and write that as fiction, I don't think I could come up with things as perfect as that, like interviewing all these business owners, saying that people are worried about violence, saying that we should give the police more guns and armor and just like more leeway to shoot people. like. It's also so textbook. Yeah. Uh, we'll wrap it up there. I had wanted to mention just briefly, you know, Navalny in Russia, as we've mentioned before on the podcast. Um, if anybody's not familiar with the Azov Battalion in Ukraine, there were some anti, I mean, there were some fascists. Um, here's two headlines that I just cribbed just to describe that very briefly. Here's a headline from the Gray Zone. Belarusian regime change activist Roman Protasevich, whose arrest on a grounded plane caused a global scandal, fought in Ukraine's neo-Nazi Azov Battalion and was cultivated by the U.S. government's media apparatus. And if you find that article in the Gray Zone, you can clearly see pictures of this guy in his military, like his military apparel with the Azov Battalion patches on there, like these fascist patches and like pictures of him with a background that's the Iron Sun in some kind of like neo-Nazi propaganda that he was in. Now, if you just Google Roman Protasevich, you get the New York Times article. And the New York Times article headline is Roman Protasevich, a Belarus activist who, quote, refused to live in fear. Disgusted by the brutality of President Alexander G. Lukashenko, Mr. Protasevich bravely embarked at 16 on a life in opposition. And the picture they have of him is like this fresh-faced 16-year-old, as if he's just some young kid who's fighting against totalitarianism and authoritarianism. It's so blatant, so It's so blatant. Okay, so the last thing I will leave us with, just to tie this up in a bow, I hope that everyone has at least left here with a few examples of liberals siding with fascists um, and why they would do that and how it serves their interests uh, as far as property rights and maintaining their station of power and comfort based on the exploitation of working classes to do so. Yeah, I'd say simply put is liberals will always side with fascists because fascism doesn't threaten capital. Exactly. Yeah. And so just to, to tie it up at the end here, this is again quoting that Rock Hill article. And he was talking about the ideology of false antagonisms. The ideological construction of false antagonisms in the case of liberalism and fascism serves multiple purposes. It establishes the primary front of struggle as one between rival positions within the capitalist camp. It channels people's energy into fighting over the best methods for managing capitalist rule rather than abolishing it. And it eradicates the true lines of demarcation of global class struggle. It attempts to simply take the communist option off the table by removing it entirely from the field of struggle 
disingenuously presenting it as a form of totalitarianism. And that's where you get the intentional conflation of communism and fascism. You get people who think that Hitler and Stalin were exactly the same, even though the United States was aligned with the Soviet Union against Hitler at the time until it became inconvenient for them. And I will, I will say like, that was the big thing that I took from doing all the reading about these different fascist movements and liberals aligning with them is it just really made me wonder why the U.S. didn't align with Nazi Germany in World War II. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I still kind of wonder that. And the only reason I can think of is that the same reason that they didn't align with, well, not, it's not the same reason that they didn't align with the Soviets after World War II, because obviously the United States was ideologically opposed to communism. But the only reason I can think of that the U.S. didn't align with Nazi Germany and Hitler was because they saw that as too much of a threat. You know what I mean? Like, the U.S. wants to be the one singular world power. And I feel like the thinking there, I'm just speculating because I have really no basis to think any of this, but if I was going to just speculate in a grand sense, I would say that, you know, whoever was in charge at the time making these decisions on the grand scale was saying that Hitler would be too much of a, a formidable enemy if they were to align with him for them to be able to then turn on and take over and, you know, beat back so that they can maintain their position as the supreme world power. So, I don't know. It's the only reason I can think of. Just like I don't understand why the U.S. doesn't uh, I mean, no, because there really is like every other fascist regime, like whether it's Brazil yeah. now, Israel, like um, Modi. I think that the U.S. is a lot friendlier with Modi than they are with yeah. any of his opposition. Uh, and then again, again, of course, Navalny and Protasevich. Fucking reruns. <laughs> it really is, man. Again, like it just sounds more like the Israel episode. Just it's just tiring. It just really is exhausting. Just seeing the same thing over and over again. I'm just. I, I guess that's. I'm hoping what our goal is here is that we can sort of outline the very basics of all this stuff, because like I said, our podcast is catering to hopefully newbie lefties and people who are only somewhat vaguely familiar with these things. And for anybody, you know, breaking down the fourth wall of the podcast here, the way this whole thing works is that we pick a topic that we are like vaguely aware of, and then we read about it, write up some notes on it, and then try to read those and hopefully crack some jokes while we're doing it so that we can present this material in a somewhat interesting or informative kind of way. So hopefully that's uh, what we did here tonight. And hopefully this gives people some fodder so that they can better argue with liberals and call them the fascists yeah. that they are <laughs> because they fucking are. All right. So we'll wrap it up there. Ward, do you want to go ahead and plug your Instagram? Yeah, I got two at Ward Lolly, W A R D L A W L E Y and at millennial leftist common spelling. And I'll plug once again, two, six, two talks. That is uh, Daniel's podcast uh, based out of Kenosha, Wisconsin. And again, not as left as this, but nobody's perfect. What can you do? <laughs> uh, for Sterling, I'll plug the Twitter. That's Twitter slash turn left as pod. Uh, Cosper's Twitch is twitch.tv slash C-O-S-P-E-R underscore. Jaron's website is J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N dot com. And for everything else, you can check out our link tree slash turn leftist. If you want to uh, become a Patreon subscriber, that'd be great. If you want to email us and tell us what you think of the show, that's also cool. Um, and let me just real quick... Read out our Patreons one more time. We got a new, I think we got, I, I want to say we actually got two new ones since we recorded Ooh. Thursday night. I know, right? We're crushing it, dude. Yeah. Eventually we'll start putting out premium stuff. <laughs> well, hopefully that's what uh, we've accomplished this week. And to the listeners, I hope this episode helps you better understand the phrase, scratch a liberal and a fascist bleeds. Yes, that's what we should title it. All right, so thanks again, of course, to all of our patron subscribers. We're all Marxist. MC, John Bovey, Fan420, Aaron, Kyle, John Claude Manhands, Mail, Phil, 
Karl Marx, and Jay Reese. Thank you guys so much. We cannot thank you enough. We really appreciate it. All right. That's it for tonight. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Tell a friend. Have a good one. Have a good one. Thanks for coming on.